Well, my name's Matt, and it is a joy and pleasure to be able to open the Word with you guys tonight. Uh, I'm, I'm pumped. This is a really sweet topic that I'm really passionate about. Before we get going, though, I want to take us back to Halloween evening uh, and tell a little story. My wife and I, uh, married obviously, are sitting at home about 9 p.m. and uh, watching Fireproof, right? Anyone seen Fireproof here? Good flick, tears in our eyes, right? We'd gone to uh, the NBC Halloween party home watching Fireproof, and I get a text from my aunt. And uh, she's got two little girls, my two little cousins that are eight years old, and they're twins. And let me tell you, man, these two girls are as much opposites as you could possibly imagine. One of them's kind of darker, you know, tan. One of them's really pale. The other one's into princesses and fairy tales and pink and dresses. The other one, not kidding, wants to be a football player. Uh, she wears basketball shorts. Uh, she always wants to wrestle. Um, in fact, we had them as our flower girls for our wedding. And on the one hand, the one just, oh, I want to go dress shopping and try on all these dresses. And the other one, it was pulling teeth getting her in a dress on the day even. And so, uh, guys, could you just put up that photo? I just want you guys to maybe guess uh, which one uh, was which when we get the photo up here. Because this, this photo just epitomized the difference in these two little girls. <laughs> Yeah, Anna Lee and Elena are their names. Uh, Anna Lee was set on being the Hulk, and she wanted hairy toes even, I think. So, um, Anyways, thanks guys for putting that up. That really has nothing to do with what we're going to talk about tonight, but it just cracked me up, so I wanted to share it. Uh, let's go to the text. So if you've got a Bible, open to Ephesians chapter 4. We're in the New Testament, second half of your Bible. Uh, we've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, a couple of Corinthians... Galatians and Ephesians. And we're going to go to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. Uh, we'll read this verse together. Ephesians 4:32 says, "Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you." This will be our verse of consideration for the evening. If you recall from last time I spoke, I, I actually taught out of Ephesians 4.25, uh, where we were exhorted to speak the truth to one another. Uh, to quickly refresh your memory, Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus where Timothy was the pastor. Uh, Paul had been the pastor in Ephesus, and now his young disciple Timothy had filled his place. And from the two letters written to Timothy, First and Second Timothy, and also from uh, the, the letter here of Ephesians, we know that false doctrine had begun to creep into the church. False teachings had crept into the church. Therefore, in the epistle of Ephesians, what we see is a heavy dose of doctrine or, or beliefs or truths followed by instruction on how to live in light of those truths. And it's in this portion of Ephesians that we find ourselves in the practical living section or in how we ought to live in light of the truth. However, however, I wanted to point out that what we're going to be looking at is an imperative. Verse 32 is an imperative or a command. I don't want us to lose sight of the fact that it comes after the indicative. What does that mean? It comes after what is true. So an indicative is just a statement or a fact. An imperative is a command. Uh, and if you remember, last time we looked at Ephesians 4, 17-24. In fact, look there with me now in your Bibles. I want you to see this for yourself. Ephesians 4, 17-19, I'll just kind of highlight it, but it describes how the natural man is futile in thinking. You might see that phrase. You might see darkened in understanding, hardened in heart, 
or just overall uh, given to impurity at the end of verse 19. And then if you look at verse 20, it says, this is kind of a, a reminder and at the same time a call to salvation. What does he say? In verse 20 he says, but you did not learn Christ in this way. You did not learn Christ in this way. And then he goes on to explain, Paul the author, in verses 21 to 24, what genuine conversion looks like. What a true believer looks like. He says in in 21 to 24 that the true believer has laid aside the old self. The mind has been renewed. And a new self has been created in righteousness. Look at the end of 24. In righteousness and holiness of the truth. Well, I would submit that Paul is laying this doctrinal foundation in the first three chapters and then a little break here in 17 to 24. He's laying this foundation so that he's got a ground to stand on for the commands that are to come. And if you remember, we started in 25 last time I taught. He says, uh, therefore, in light of what's true, speak the truth to one another. And he goes into this big section uh, on imperatives. So, 32, um, I'm going to read it one more time and read it with me. It says, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Forgiveness has really always been a unique quality of Christians, though, has it not? I mean, I think beginning with the first martyr, Stephen, who in in the book of Acts uh, was being stoned. And what did he look to heaven and say? He said, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And then even going back all the way up to the 19th, 20th century. In fact, in the 80s, there was a well-known author and secular humanist named Marganita Lasky. And on her deathbed, she said, what I envy most about you Christians is your forgiveness. I have nobody to forgive me. Or listen to this, this story struck me in particular. It says, when the first missionaries came to Alberta, Canada, they were savagely opposed by a young chief of the Cree Indians. But he responded to the Gospel and accepted Christ. Praise the Lord. Shortly afterward, a member of the Blackfoot tribe killed his father. The chief rode into the village where the murderer lived and demanded that he be brought before him. Confronting the guilty man, he said, you have killed my father, so now you must be my father. You shall ride my best horse and wear my best clothes. In utter amazement and remorse, his enemy exclaimed, My son, you have now killed me. And he meant, of course, that the hate in his own heart had been completely erased by the forgiveness and kindness of the Indian chief. Like I said, forgiveness has been the mark of Christians through the ages. And so, guys, my goal for this evening is to leave this verse imprinted on your heart, to leave you with the idea of forgive one another just as God in Christ has forgiven me. And that because of it, we wouldn't just attain some sort of knowledge, some sort of head knowledge, and be smarter about forgiveness, but that we would be changed. Amen? The goal is to be changed. And so I want to begin by addressing, if you've got a note sheet, great. If not, um, that's fine. But I want to begin by addressing the makeup or the content of true forgiveness. The substance or the quality. What is it composed of? What does true forgiveness look like? And this is, uh, may seem like a simple thing to address at first, but maybe at first what we could do is address what true forgiveness is not. Okay, And I would submit to you that true forgiveness is not at all just saying I'm sorry. True forgiveness is not the mentality of forgive but don't forget. True forgiveness is not like a boy once said, I asked God for a bike. 
but I know God doesn't work that way, so I stole a bike and asked for forgiveness. No, not forgiveness. Neither is it like the story of Narvarez, who was a Spanish patriot, and while he lay dying, his father and confessor asked him whether he had forgiven his enemies. Narvarez looked astonished and said said to him, Father, I have no enemies. I've shot them all. Not forgiveness. True forgiveness is also not accepting an apology, but holding a grudge. True forgiveness is not expecting a vast amount of favors and generosity for the next 25 years in return from the individual who has sinned against you. That's not true forgiveness. And overall, true forgiveness is not half-hearted. I want you to think for a moment about how God forgives. Does God accept an apology but still hold a grudge? Does God look at us with a suspicious eye after we've sinned against Him? Does God forgive us in a half-hearted way? I sure hope not. Because if so, I'm in trouble and I would imagine that most of us are in trouble. In fact, all of us would be. This is not how God forgives and this is not what our forgiveness should consist of either. In fact, the word in verse 32 of Ephesians 4 for forgive means to pardon or freely bestow. The idea of of forgiveness is to graciously offer a full and complete pardon, not a partial pardon, or just halfway forgiving. Forgiveness, whether from God to us or from us to others, involves continuing to seek to restore the relationship and at no point giving up on someone. In fact, in Matthew 18, you can either go there or just listen. In Matthew 18, verse 21, we see this explained by our Lord Jesus. We know that Jesus was a loving person, but what about His expectations for His followers? What was He to expect of them with regards to forgiveness? Well, in Matthew 18, uh, verses 21 and 22, it says, Then Peter came and said to Him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Lord, should I forgive him up to seven times if he sins and, and comes to me and asks for forgiveness? Seven whole times? What does Jesus say? Look at verse 22. And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven times. What was Jesus' point? You forgive them unlimited amount of times as they come to you. Not just seven, but seventy times seven. Christ expected unlimited forgiveness, knowing that love covers a multitude of sins. And this forgiveness was to be continuous and unmerited. Well, the makeup of forgiveness will hopefully become more clear as we go. It's kind of hard to define exactly the quality or substance unless we just look at Jesus Himself. And we're going to do that here in a second. But with that as a glimpse, I now want to look at the mess that often comes with forgiveness. The problems, right? Forgiveness is not easy. I understand that. Forgiveness is not easy. I realize there are several problems or hang-ups that come with forgiveness. It can be good in, in theory, but practically so many things enter into this equation of forgiveness. It's relational, so it's going to be messy, and we're sinful humans. <laughs> uh, so looking at the mess of forgiveness, I've come up with three, just three. I know there's many more, but um, three obstacles or problems that really need to be dealt with in dealing with the, the heart and forgiveness. And so the first obstacle or mess is that forgiveness requires humility, and we are prideful. Right? We know this. We're all prideful. It takes a lot of humility to not want to seek vengeance for yourself, right? To, want, to not want to go eye for eye or tooth for tooth. Oh, you did me like this, so I'm going to do you like this now. 
It takes a lot of humility to have that mentality. Obstacle number two, the second problem with forgiveness is that the debt is real, right? The act that's been done is real and there's real hurt, real pain that comes with it. It results in personal damage. Say your parents weren't there or they raised you poorly or a spouse or a boyfriend or girlfriend cheats on you, goes behind your back. Your best friend stabs you in the back or someone's gossiping about you behind your back. These are real things that that carry real weight with them, are they not? That's why Chuck Swindoll said, in order to forgive, you must give even more than has already been taken. And this is hard. Very, very hard. Obstacle number three, the third problem with forgiveness is that it doesn't guarantee that the other person will change. It doesn't guarantee that it won't happen again, that the other person will change. And so we're going to get to the means and motives of how to genuinely forgive here in a second, but in an attempt to initially answer these obstacles that I've listed, can I just point you to the ultimate forgiver, Jesus Christ, to look to His example? We want to talk about this first obstacle of being humble. Christ had humility. Christ was human, just as you and I are humans. And yet Philippians 2.8 says that He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Well, how does this help us to forgive? Well, forgiveness is not natural. And I would argue that without Christ, our tendency would be to look down our noses at some people and to say, well, I'm not going to forgive you. Why would I do that? But think about it, guys. We've all been the offender. If you know the forgiveness of Christ, then you know you've done something far greater than anyone could do to you. So you know (laughs) that you don't deserve anything. You don't deserve uh, a certain expectation when you can't even obey your own Lord and Savior. I'm talking to myself, too, right? And so, there's a sense in which when we consider the cross of Christ and Christ's life, it brings about humility in us enough to forgive debts and hurts that have been committed against us. We've been forgiven greater, therefore, we forgive. The second obstacle, in a similar fashion, is that forgiveness involves debt that is real. And you bet you Christ knew this. You bet you Christ knew the debt of sin was real. And I don't mean to minimize what you've been through. And, and I know, you know, for some of you in here, you've experienced a lot of pain and hurt from someone in your life. I don't know who, but you do. But I'm here to tell you that what Christ experienced was far greater even than what you've experienced. And yet, according to Hebrews 12.2, it says, He endured the cross, despising the shame. The hurt and pain was so real for him to you guys. Listen in a description of what, of what Christ went through. Listen to Isaiah 53. Many of you are familiar with this passage, but Isaiah 53 verses 3-6 through six say he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs He Himself bore and our sorrows He carried, yet we ourselves esteemed Him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon Him, and by His scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to His own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. Guys, Christ suffered real pain, real shame for our sin. 
And yet he was speechless. The next verse I didn't read says that he went to the cross without a word. And so, if you've been hurt by someone and yet to forgive them, I just at this point want to lovingly and gently encourage you to consider your offense to God and that Christ was hurt far greater. And yet he still forgives graciously, does he not? So we too are called to suffer at times. There's going to be suffering at times. But we also have the power of Christ to forgive. Well, the third obstacle um, in the same fashion, guys, to our forgiving others is that it doesn't guarantee that the other person is going to change. Right? If I forgive someone, there's no promise or stamp or seal or commitment a lot of times that, hey, this will never ever happen again. That can be scary. And yet again, I think of Hebrews 4.15 where it says, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. (laughs) Guys, think of Christ. He has forgiven only to be burned again and again by every human being who's ever even received Him as Lord, let alone the ones that haven't received Him. Right? Even His own disciples continuously turned away from Him. Right? Peter denied Him three times. And not to bash on Peter. We're all right there with Him. But Christ <laughs> died for our sins and forgave us before we had even ever sinned. And even after we become a believer, He forgives us. And we need His forgiveness again and again and again. He knew that when He forgave us though, did He not? He knew that we were going to do that, and yet He still chose to forgive. And so what does this mean for you in terms of our human relationships? Well, it means that we can be long-suffering and glorify God through it. We can forgive and fully forgive, and we can do so like Jesus said, not seven times, but seven times, 70 times. Now, I do want to address one thing here. There's a sense, guys, in which we need to be wise, right? If you're in a situation that's causing you harm or damage um, or immense hurt, put up boundaries in your life so that you're not in that situation. Um, You know, I'm not going to address particular scenarios, but I think you know what I'm talking about. However, this still should not affect your forgiveness. And I would even say you put up those boundaries until God begins to change this person, right? Until He begins to change this person. But that doesn't... (laughs) change the fact that you can still forgive them in your own heart. In fact, I would even submit this. Catch this, guys. I would say forgiveness could be and is first and foremost between you and the Lord. As weird as that sounds. Listen to Mark 11.25. It says, whenever you stand praying, okay, whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgression. So what we observe here is that when we are praying, which prayer is between you and who? God. When we are praying, forgive so that you can be forgiven. Again, I'm not going to say that you necessarily have to trust this person fully, but you do need to have forgiven them before the Lord and be willing to forgive them relationally. Does that make sense? Once you have forgiven them between you and God, you're ready to forgive them if they come and ask. And if they come to you in repentance and are sorrowful over their sin and hurt towards you, then you can lovingly forgive them in a Christ-like way. Well, that's the mess, okay? That's the 
the makeup and the mess of forgiveness. Um, but what are the means? And what I mean by means are, what's the avenue or the practical steps for forgiving? And to answer this question, I want to turn right back to the text in Ephesians to find a few answers. So look back at Ephesians 4, and I want to draw your attention to the verse just prior uh, to the one that we were looking at. Verse 31. It says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. And guys, I would submit that in order to truly and biblically forgive one another, we must put off wrong and evil thoughts and intentions. We must put off wrong and evil thoughts and intentions. This list of of thoughts, feelings, and intentions um, that are listed here ultimately create disunity within the church. They prohibit unity from occurring. Well, interestingly, this, ver- this section, 31, can be broken into two parts, internal and external. Internal thoughts and feelings, external thoughts and feelings. And I would say that the internal uh, thoughts and feelings are bitterness, wrath, and anger. And so let me just ask you a direct question. Are you often angry? Are you often angry? Are you always grumpy and feeling like the world's out to get you? Well, can I just tell you something? That it's not everyone else's fault. You need to consider the fact that there may be a heart issue going on that's deeper than the fact that your roommate has still left his underwear in the living room floor. Right? That is not where your anger problem is coming from. There's something going on deeper in your heart that's making, that's making you lash out. Pick those up! In fact, guys, listen to this. 95% of all cases of depression, 95% of all cases of depression are a result of anger towards self or someone else. Prolonged anger causes us to lose this vital chemical in our brain that gives joy and peace. It's really no wonder the Bible talks about anger so much. right? Just in this same passage, uh, a few verses earlier, don't let the sun go down on your anger. No wonder the Bible addresses this. It's for our own joy and happiness. Guys, anger is one antithesis to forgiveness. If you're constantly angry, you cannot, you cannot truly forgive. Well, another holdup to forgiveness listed here is bitterness. How about bitterness? Have you stored up bitterness in your heart towards someone? Over time, here's what I've observed about bitterness. Is that you don't know it's coming until it's already set in. What I mean is bitterness is not going to set up camp in your heart with a big flashing sign saying, moving in, bitterness, here we come. Right? It's not going to do that. In fact, you might not even realize it until someone else has pointed it out in your life. Or until it's manifested itself in some other form in this list. Bitterness going to wrath. Bitterness going to malice or anger or whatever. But guys, listen, Hebrews 12.15 speaks directly to this. It says, see to it that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many are defiled. Listen, gang, bitterness will fester and smolder within you, resulting in harm not to the one whom you're bitter with, but immense harm and destruction to yourself. Like a cancer, it will make the individual sour irritable, miserable, oftentimes leading to depression, even thoughts of suicide, right? Robert E. Lee, 
A lot of you guys know that name, Civil War General, said it's better to forgive the injustices of the past than to allow them to remain, lest bitterness take root and poison the rest of our lives. Simply put, bitterness kills us from the inside out. While bitterness, anger, and wrath are all within the person, and they prohibit us from forgiving one another. Holding on to these will actually ruin yourself instead of making someone else's life miserable. And that's when I just think of, man, Matthew West wrote a song called Forgiveness. Listen to this verse. It'll clear the bitterness away. It can even set a prisoner free. There is no end to what its power can do. So let it go and be amazed by what you see through eyes of grace. The prisoner that it really frees is you. Guys, if you're holding on to these things in your heart, anger or bitterness, bitterness, I would just plead with you, let them go. Give them to the, Lord, to the Lord for your own good and for His glory. Well, those are the internal, right? Those are the internal uh, prohibitions from forgiving. But what always happens with sin? How does sin act? Well, it usually ramps up, right? You, you grow a, a uh, numbness to one layer of sin, and it goes a step further. And so it is here. These inner, internal forms of, of anger and, and bitterness eventually turn to clamor and slander and malice, as you see in verse 31. And listen, guys, you know exactly what this is talking about, right? A girl is jealous of another girl because she's pretty, and that feeling of bitterness immediately turns into uh, slander, right? It does. Gossip, slander. Uh, guys, you see another guy having success, our immediate response is all too often to go and start talking bad about him or try and bring him down somehow. Or you just want to fight him even. You don't even know. You just, uh, right? I don't even, that's, I mean, it happens that quickly. Sometimes it takes a long time. Sometimes it's immediate. Bitterness, boom, anger or malice or envy or whatever these outward forms of, uh, you know, slander. For both guys and gals, we all too often we want to see someone fail. But guys, if you want to do what the Lord commands us to, to forgive one another, we must put off bitterness, anger, slander, and malice. They are, we cannot fulfill this command if those things are present in our heart. One thing I love about Scripture is that a lot of times it'll, uh, it'll tell you like, what to do or what not to do, and then it'll tell you the other one, like what to do or what not to do. Right? And sometimes it's implied, but <clears throat> sometimes it's direct. Well, that's what we got right here. Verses, verse 31 is what not to do. Right? Put those things away. Well, then as we roll back into verse 32, it's what to do. So again, right, 31, let all this stuff uh, be put away from you. But verse 32 says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. So rather than having these internal and external forms of anger, we're called to be kind, tender-hearted, and forgiving. Notice that these commands have no conditions though, right? It doesn't say, uh, be kind to those who are kind to you. And in fact, in Luke 6.35, Jesus said, love your enemies, do good, and lend expecting nothing in return. So rather than basing our response to what we're seeing in God's Word on how people are relating to us, we're called to, to obey God's word unconditionally. It says here, be kind and tender-hearted. Now, it seems that what we looked at in 31, this whole description, is the way to becoming hard-hearted. 
Does it not? And so it's interesting that almost the exact opposite. It says, be tender-hearted. Well, tender-hearted implies that one is not bitter, not angry, not slanderous, but is extremely burdened with compassion. In fact, the word for tender-hearted means to have feeling within the bowels, okay, within the gut. Have you ever like felt compassion for someone so much that you can like feel emotion in here? Or like if they do bad, you just feel sick to your stomach? Or if they're doing good, you're like filled with joy and excitement? That's what this is saying. And it's saying be like that all the time. It's saying have that kind of attitude toward everyone. What if that's how we were toward everyone? <laughs> Rather than feeling jealousy or resentment like we were talking about, what if we were constantly tender-hearted toward our competitors, even our enemies, even those that we really have a hard time with? Well, having a tender heart is one sign that the Spirit of God is indeed working within you. Still under this section of uh, the means of how to forgive one another, we've seen from verse 31, put off, all that stuff, right? Slander, malice, hate. It doesn't say hate, but anger, wrath. Uh, verse 32 says, be kind to one another, be tender-hearted, and then it says, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiving, forgiven you. Here, okay, I want to teach this for a minute. When hurt occurs, or when rejection occurs, there are really two biblical responses. This was really good for me to study, because I'd, I'd kind of known this, but wasn't certain about it. But there's two biblical responses when someone sins against you. Listen here, if you get one thing from tonight. The first response is to forgive them, and then to overlook the matter, right? Uh, I'll draw this from Proverbs 19.11, where it says, it is the glory of a man to overlook a transgression. Okay? So we draw this principle of overlooking a sin. Say someone sins against you, but you feel as though you can forgive them and you don't necessarily need to bring it up to them. You can get by it. Um, and in fact, maybe sometimes it's even better for the person if you don't bring it up. Say you've got a young believer or, uh, you know, and, and they're already wrestling with some stuff and they, they do kind of a smaller sin against you. Okay, I can forgive them and I can overlook it. I don't need to take it to them, right? As Peter says, love covers a multitude of sins. But there's a second biblical response to being sinned against as well. If you've forgiven someone, but you're really unable to move past it, Scripture does allow us to confront a brother or sister who's sinned against us. Listen to Luke chapter 17, verses 3 and 4. It says, If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. So we see that following this rebuke, right, this confrontation, hey, brother, what you did really hurt me or you sinned against me, the person may or may not repent or they may or may not ask you for forgiveness. And if they don't, what I want to tell you, though, guys, is that you can still forgive them. Remember, forgiveness is first and foremost between you and God. You can forgive them within your own heart and be ready to forgive them if and when they repent. They, guys, this can be so helpful. This can be so helpful. Sometimes people don't realize they're in a certain sin. They don't realize they're causing hurt to you and, and or others. They don't realize um, just the extent of what they're doing. And this could be a wonderful, wonderful wake-up call from the Lord through you. You know what I mean? Now, <laughs> as, an, as an aside, there is a precautionary note. This is not for things that are just preferences, right? This is not for just 
oh, I wish things were like this and everyone did things this way, so I'm going to go around rebuking everyone until they do it this way. Don't do that, please. This is talking about sin. Okay, this is talking about if someone has sinned against you, you need to forgive them, and sometimes you need to go to them and let them know, hey, you sinned against me, brother. Um, you know, I want to let you know I forgive you, uh, and then it, give them the opportunity to ask you for forgiveness uh, or not. In either scenario, though, whether overlooking or rebuking, both require a heart of forgiveness. Well, this leads me to the fourth and final aspect of where I want to spend the rest of our time, and that is the motives of forgiveness. Mm. Motives, guys, are so critical when we want to accomplish anything productive. You know what I'm saying? Right? (coughs) Unless we know why we're doing something, it's really hard to be all in with it. And I would even say that if change is going to occur, it will come from adequately answering and responding to the question of why. Excuse me. Gotta love PST. (coughs) The what and how of a matter are good, but unless we know why, right? Unless we know why, it's just moral reformation. So, motive number one comes from verse 32 and says, Be kind to one another, uh, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. (coughs) Oh, I'm choking. So, motive number one is is forgive because we have been forgiven. Well, it would follow that in order to be able to forgive, <clears throat> we have to grasp what it really means. What, what is the value or quality of what we've been forgiven? It says, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. So I would ask you, Christian, have you ever pondered the depth and weight of what you've been forgiven? We did this at the beginning, but imagine if God kept tabs on your sin. And I mean, your, your, your B.C. days and your, your after Right, your before Christ days, before you were a believer, and since you've been a believer, if he kept track of all your sins, can you imagine the guilt that would hang over your head? Think about the effects we see in human relationships when a grudge is held for a period of time. Right, you've got two girls, two girls. There, something happens. They are at war. Okay, one of them walks into cross life, and the other one, and they glance eyes, and the other one just darts to the other side of the room, and. This one's to this side of the room, and they do not want to see each other. And then the one sees her best friend with the other one. Oh man, now it's on. <laughs> she's more upset with her best friend than she is with the one that she's, you know. I, next thing you know, you've just got this big war, followed by all these feelings of bitterness, and the whole thing ends in this battle, and that's just how it goes. On one hand, you've got someone feeling like, you know, the person that hasn't forgiven them owes them. <laughs> and yet, on the other hand, the person feels like there's this weight over their head because they've, you know, maybe they have wronged them. But here's what I want to observe from this, even from a human relationship: forgiveness, forgiveness frees, right? Forgiveness frees, and it makes peace. Romans eight one. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ, and this is so true, guys. Forgiveness freeze is so true of our divine relationship too. Romans 8.1 says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Forgiveness from God frees us to have a clear conscience toward the Lord and in turn to forgive Him. But Christian, I want (coughs) to probe a little bit deeper. Do you really know the weight of what you've been forgiven? This is fundamental. Fundamental to your recognition 
of your own need for a Savior, fundamental to salvation. For example, do you know that we are in our natural state opposed to God? We are by nature sinners and bent away from God. And furthermore, that we practice sin from the time we are born. Fish swim, birds fly, humans sin, right? It's what we do. We are prideful towards God. We commit adultery toward the things of the world, toward things that God has made. Imagine for a moment, I had this up here for a reason, not just to drink, um, that I were to create a bunch of ants, and I put my little likeness on them, whatever that looks like, and uh, I make them to worship me, okay? And they run off at the minute I make them, and I say, okay, ready, go. They run off, and they start worshiping this can. Now, I want to be careful not to speak on behalf of God, but I can just imagine from my human perspective, it's like, what, what are you doing? That's not what God would say. Uh, but right, that's what we do. Guys, we are made to worship God. We are made to glorify God. And yet, we turn toward the creation rather than the creator. We play the harlot and get caught up in money and careers and possessions and, and sex and the whole thing, popularity. Titus 3.3 says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. That's our natural state. That's who we are at our core. And yet, what a Savior. Guys, go to Romans. Can't help this. Go to Romans. Go to Romans chapter 5. If you're in Ephesians, go back to your left about four books and you'll find it. Uh, Romans chapter 5. I want to show you what exactly Christ has done. Romans chapter 5, verse 6. It says, For while we... Right after Acts. Just before 1 Corinthians. Romans 5, verse 6. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare to even die. But God demonstrated His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through death, the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. Guys, this is the Word. Do you realize what the extent of our forgiveness is? You've heard it said before, but guys, what Jesus did on the cross is no different than, than someone running to the enemy's camp and jumping on a grenade and taking the grenade for the enemy. It's saying it's one thing to take the, the grenade for your own team. It's another thing to go and take the grenade for the other team. And that's what Jesus did. We were His enemy, and Jesus died for us. The depth and weight of what we've been forgiven stems from the fact that God is holy. He's set apart, perfectly pure, clean, sinless. And He's just, meaning that He must punish sin. Therefore, He has anger and wrath towards sin. Rightfully so. He's perfect. He's sinless. But look at the words of Romans 5.9. It says, Christ died for us. And then it says, and by His blood we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. We are saved from the wrath of God through Him. Many of you know Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5. 
After laying out who man is, it says, but God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. Do you see the weight of what has happened here? For the genuine born-again believer, He has taken us from Satan, from evil, from wickedness, and given us new life. Brand new life in Christ. Guys, not only are we forgiven, but we are completely forgiven. Not only are we completely forgiven, but we are showing excessive favor. We're showing mercy, not deserving what we get, which is hell. And then we're showing grace on top of mercy, getting what we don't deserve, which is, well, there's a whole list of things. Heaven, an inheritance, eternal life, uh, joy, salvation, uh, unity with, uh, with God, peace with God. I mean, we could go on and on all night. Guys, when this realization hits, lives change. God causes the soul of a man or woman to be born again. I've seen it happen in others' lives. I've seen it happen in my own life. Well, I want to show a video clip now. Guys, if you guys could kind of start to get that ready. Uh, This scene, I told you, right? Halloween. Watching Fireproof, tears running. Uh, This scene in Fireproof struck me as a great display of forgiveness. So, yeah. Caleb, if I were to ask you why you're so frustrated with Catherine, what would you say? She's stubborn. She makes everything difficult for me. She's ungrateful. She's constantly griping about something. Has she thanked you for anything you've done the last 20 days? No! And you'd think after I wash the car, I've changed the oil, do the dishes, clean the house, that she would try to show me a little bit of gratitude. But she doesn't. In fact, when I come home, she makes me feel like I'm, like I'm an enemy. I'm not even welcome in my own home, Dad. That is what really ticks me off. Dad, for the last three weeks, I have been over backwards for her. I have tried to demonstrate that I still care about this relationship. I bought her flowers, which she threw away. I have taken her insults and her sarcasm, but last night was it. I made dinner for her. I did everything I could to demonstrate that I care about her, to show value for her, and she spat in my face. She does not deserve this, Dad. I am not doing it anymore. How am I supposed to show love to somebody over and over and over who constantly rejects me? That's a good question. Dad, that is not what I'm doing. Isn't it? No. Dad, that is not what this is about. Son, you just asked me. How can someone show love over and over again when they're constantly rejected? Caleb, the answer is... You can't love her because you can't give her what you know I have. I couldn't truly love your mother until I understood what love really was. It's not because I get some reward out of it. I've now made a decision to love your mother whether she deserves it or not. Son, God loves you even though you don't deserve it. Even though you've rejected Him spat in his face 
God sent Jesus to die on the cross and take the punishment for your sin because He loves you. The cross was offensive to me until I came to it. But when I did, Jesus Christ changed my life. That's when I truly began to love your mom. Son, I can't settle this for you. This is between you and the Lord. But I love you too much not to tell you the truth. Can't you see that you need Him? Can't you see that you need His forgiveness? Will you trust Him with your life? Good stuff, huh? Right? See where the tears come from. Right. Excellent picture of forgiveness on a divine level and a lack thereof on the human level. He says you can't give her, you can't love her if you don't have it. You can't give her what you don't have. Um, I just thought that was a great display. I want to read you a a parable uh, along these same lines in Luke chapter 7, uh, verse 40. It says, And Jesus answered him and said, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, Say it, teacher. A moneylender had two debtors. One owned 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, You have judged correctly. Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but since the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. It says, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Reality is, guys, is that we have all accrued an impossible debt to pay. We would be a $5 million debtor in the parable. And yet, we've been forgiven. The principle that I want to draw from this, guys, is that it's not that those who are forgiven a lot love a lot or forgive a lot, but it's that some are brought to a greater awareness of the forgiveness they've been shown. And that this leads them to forgive in a greater way. We must come to a full understanding of our personal offense to God before we can fully appreciate His forgiveness, and before we can really forgive others. Well, continuing with this motive number one uh, as to why to forgive, the parable of, uh, in Luke 7 presents us with some interesting information. It says, He who has forgiven much loves much. And I've wondered about this relationship between forgive and love. And so uh, turn back to Ephesians again, if you're not there, to finish things off here as we wrap up. Um, <clears throat> I want to connect some dots here. So back to the little letter of Ephesians, chapter 4, start in verse 32. 
And I'm going to read through 5-2 this time. It says, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave Himself up for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Interesting, right? Do you guys see kind of a, a, a link between forgiveness and love? Look at 32. It says, Just as God in Christ has forgiven you, we're to forgive. And then in verse 2 of chapter 5, it says, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. And just before that, it tells us to walk in love. I'm not a scholar, but I think there's a direct correlation here. I would say that love is perhaps displayed by forgiveness. Love in itself cannot be defined by one action, but one way to show true love is to forgive. Christ showed his love for us by forgiving us. And further, one of the greatest ways that the Christian can show the love of Christ to a believer and an unbeliever is to forgive. Forgiveness requires sacrificial love. Just as verse 2 says, Christ gave himself as a sacrifice, and so it is in our human relationships. Forgiveness does require sacrifice. It does, and it requires love. Therefore, we are, as we have been loved, we are to love. And as we have been forgiven, we are to forgive. You want to know what the result is, guys? On a divine level, peace, right? It says fragrant aroma. It's referring back to the Old Testament sacrifices. I'll let you study that on your own. Peace, okay? How about on a relational level, horizontal? What's the result? Peace and unity. That's what Paul's driving at in this whole book is unity. Unity, unity, unity. Man, sin is so deceptive, though. It deceives us towards selfishness and things contrary to that, does it not? Well, that's the first motive and the, the most prominent. And it'll carry us through these next two. These next two are just going to be brief. But the second motive as we why we ought to forgive one another. Remember back to why. Why, why, why? Okay, here's the what, here's the how. Why should I do this? It says we are to imitate God. Do you guys remember last year? What did we do? Semester uh, study, right? Imago Dei, right? We're made in the image of God. Genesis one twenty seven. Man, God made man in the image of God, of Himself. And therefore, we are to be image bearers. All year we looked at attributes of God and how we are to reflect them. Look at how potent these three verses are with Imago Dei. Okay, look at 32. It says, forgive one another just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Verse 1 of chapter 5, be imitators of God. It's very direct. Uh, Verse 2, walk in love just as Christ loved you and gave himself up for an offering. And so the believer is called to imitate God. And as we start to wrap things up, guys, I just want to challenge you with this. The thesis for the evening its on the bottom of your sheet. I believe that forgiveness is perhaps the most basic and essential quality that is to be reflected in the life of a Christian. Forgiveness is the most basic and essential quality that is to be reflected in the life of a Christian. As children of God who are forgiven, we are to forgive. Motive number three as to why we should forgive, guys, is because the Spirit of God is at work within us. Look at verse 30. Okay, Look at verse 30, chapter 4. It says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And then it flows into 31, 32, which we already looked at. Why would he say don't grieve the Spirit right in the middle of these other behavioral commands? Right? 
kind of confusing. Remember verse 25, and these are all imperative behavioral commands. And then in the middle of them is this imperative of don't grieve the Spirit. The answer? I would submit it's the Spirit of God that is working to make these changes in your life. This isn't just a list of do's and don'ts just for the sake of following some rules. This is about the Spirit of God working to conform us to the image of His Son. Romans 8.29 says, Those whom He foreknew, He predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son. Colossians 1.28, We proclaim Him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. And in Ephesians 4.13, same chapter, Paul says the goal of the ministry was to become a mature man to the measure and stature that belongs to the fullness of Christ. The Holy Spirit, guys, is working in the believer's life to perform these changes, these imperatives, these commands. The, The Spirit is working to make us more like His Son. And to refuse the Spirit's working is to grieve the Spirit. That's why Paul says, don't grieve the Spirit. Well, if we look at 30, the second part of it says, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Guys, when we become one with the Spirit of God and His presence is active in our lives, we are sealed by Him until the final process of our salvation is complete. Glorification. Until we're in heaven. When we become a believer, we are sealed as a believer. And furthermore, I would argue that when you see the Spirit making changes in your life, when you see the Spirit doing work in your life, it gives you assurance that you're a believer. It confirms that in your own heart and mind, heart mind, uh, that you're a child of God, right? It puts that seal on you. The Spirit is the one that enables us to put off spirit, put off bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor, and to put on attitudes of kindness, gentleheartedness, forgiveness. What a glorious thing that the Spirit of the Creator God would be at work in the simple mind and body of men and women like us. Amen? Man. So as we close, guys, with this thought in mind that the ultimate goal is to be made into the image of Christ, is there forgiveness that needs to occur in your life that's prohibiting this process? Perhaps you need to forgive someone before the Lord and then also maybe even go to them. Tell them that they've hurt you and that you've forgiven them for that. If so, what a great opportunity to show humility and to extend grace and to be like Christ. Maybe, guys, you need to ask someone for forgiveness. Maybe you've sinned against them. And I'm saying, don't just go to them and say, I'm sorry. Okay, that's not asking forgiveness. But go to them and say, hey, brother, or hey, sister, I did this. I hurt you in this way. This was wrong. This was sin. Will you forgive me for that? With a genuine heart, ask them for forgiveness. Again, from our end of things, first and foremost, we need to seek forgiveness from God. Whether you're the offender or the offendee, I would argue, you need to give that to the Lord. But then, there's reconciliation that needs to take place at a relational level. And furthermore, I would say, do so now. Right? I was talking with uh, Coulter about Matthew 5, 23 and 24 today that says when you're at the, the altar and you're presenting your offering and you realize you've got a sin against a brother, leave the altar. Go and be reconciled first. Ask him for forgiveness, then come back. What's the big picture? When, before worshiping God, be reconciled. Even if, first and foremost, be reconciled. Seek forgiveness and peace and unity. Then go worship the Lord. Guys, can you imagine what a grace-filled place this would be 
if we were constantly in a race to get to each other to ask for forgiveness or to extend forgiveness, it would just be like unicorns and rainbows. I mean, it would just be like, it would be peace. There will be a day when it's going to be like that. Not necessarily the unicorns and rainbows, but where there's going to be complete peace everywhere. No sin will happen. No reconciliation will need, be needed. That'll be heaven. But until then, I just pray, God, would you make us to forgive one another as we've been forgiven. Would you bow with me as we close? Father, what a truth we have considered tonight, God. Your Word, um, it speaks clearly into our lives, God. Even, even in this day and age, God, it's timeless. Lord, I think about the fact that there are undoubtedly unbelievers here, God, who don't know Your forgiveness. So they might not even be able to truly forgive. And God, if that be the case, Lord, I just pray that, uh, Lord, that Your Word would draw them to You. God, that You would... Show them Your forgiveness, Your love toward them, despite our constantly rejecting You. Father, make them a child of Yours, God. Bring them into the kingdom, we pray. Father, for believers, I just pray, God, for myself and and Cross Life as a whole, that You would make us to forgive and to love in the same way that we've been forgiven and loved. Father, do this work in us, God, for Your glory and for our own good. God, that peace would be a reality here. Lord, that reconciliation would happen quickly. Lord, ultimately, we want to be changed. God, we don't want to just be learners. We want to be doers of the Word. So change us according to Your Word, God, we pray together in Jesus' name. Amen.